Well, good morning. I feel like there's like just a sweet spirit kind of in this place right now. I almost hate to screw it up. But uh, yeah, leave those things open. I like seeing the sun out there, and then we can see each other a little more. This bench is cool. I came in, and I was like, wow, that's kind of an awesome bench. And then I thought, oh, no, did Mike Murphy sit in that as he preached last night? Because I wasn't quite prepared, so I asked Mike, and guess what he said? Yes. Did he? No. So you see how it works on staff here at Christchurch. But, uh, but anyway, cool stool. You know, have you ever had kind of one of those weeks or seasons where it seemed like everything was kind of converging on you? The conversations you were having, the songs you were hearing, what you were reading or studying, even the sermon perhaps you heard, uh, whether it's over the course of a week or several weeks, seemed to be intensifying their focus on you, kind of like a magnifying glass in the sun. Have you ever had moments like that? Last week, Reverend Bianchi, Tracy, we're formal here at the 9 o'clock service. Reverend Bianchi led us into the idea of living into our baptism and what it means to live as the chosen people of God. And we looked at a quote by Dietrich Bonhoeffer, and I've been reading a lot of Bonhoeffer, which I've caught a lot of flack for this week because I'm intense enough as it is. But it said this, it said, Cheap grace is preaching of forgiveness without requiring repentance. It's baptism without church discipline. It's communion without confession. Absolution without personal confession. Cheap grace is grace without discipleship. Or as I'm going to say, followership. Grace without the cross. Grace without Jesus Christ living and incarnate in your life. And as I began to consider the message for today, I have to confess I was a little haunted because I felt this weight. I felt kind of the light focusing on me more and more as I thought about what does it mean to live as the chosen people of God, as a follower of Jesus. And in your lectionary this week, one of the passages was out of 1 Corinthians chapter 1, and Paul opens this letter by speaking to the church, sanctified, holy, the set-apart people of God because of the grace that has been poured into their lives. And what God laid on my heart this week, or at least for today, is a message as much for me as perhaps maybe it will be for you. And I'm wrestling with the question of how do we live with the call of the grace of Jesus Christ in our lives and following him? Nothing like jumping into the deep end of the pool one minute into the message right? This weekend, we remember Martin Luther King Jr., and rightfully so. And for many of us, it's a day off. But a few of us will reflect a little bit on the sacrifice that he made for civil rights. And we are in a better day because we have come to truly value and love all people, or at least we continue to live more deeply into that vision. But as I think about Dr. King and others like him, I'm, one, amazed at the fruit of their labor, of what they did, but there's a side of me that wants to wonder, what is it that was in them that led to such conviction and passion and even sacrifice? And when you look, at least to Dr. King and you look to others, I think what you find is a deep faith, or maybe what you find is a life that lives deeply out of the faith that God has given them. One news article said this of Dr. King, said the importance of King's deep faith 
and that of his followers is at times overlooked in historical retrospectives on his legacy. It was, it was more than his ability to deliver a stirring sermon that gave King moral authority. For many, King spoke with inspired authority. His words coming from some higher place, as his wife later said in his speech at the march. As he looked into the distance, they could believe he was really seeing in vision the dream of which he spoke. Religion wasn't simply an organizing tool for King. It was his driving force. You see, his life was lived from the grace of God in his life, which was much deeper than anything he could muster on his own gifts and strengths in pursuit. He shows us a life lived from a deep faith that carried with it commitment and consequences for his whole life and those around him. This past summer, I was fortunate to spend four days with John Perkins. Some of you may know uh, John Perkins. He has given his life. Uh, he's now in his 80s, but for over 50 years, he has invested himself in Mississippi. And 50, 60 years ago in Mississippi, it was not a very nice place. And John suffered pretty severely on really all fronts of life as he was persecuted there. But he was driven by this faith and this deep calling of God to press on with the work that God had given him to do. Have you ever been around someone that um, you knew was supposed to be pretty special, but then when you actually met them and were able to hang with them, like they just blow you away because who they are far exceeds the expectations of maybe what you had when you went in to that meeting. This was my experience of John. And as we talked and dined and fellowshiped and studied, um, I was touched by the man of God, John Perkins. I was impressed by what he has accomplished. He has kind of founded the Christian Community Development Strategy. It's a way to transform urban, poor areas that could thrive in communities and society. Um, it's, it's, it's changing countless places all over America and beyond. <clears throat> I was impressed by that, but I was impressed more with the man. Because see, even in the midst of, I think it was day two, day three, where we were together, he had to dismiss, him, dismiss himself and he had to go lay down. Because John still suffers some physical kind of ailments and repercussions of beatings he took many years ago in Mississippi from law enforcement officers that didn't share his passion and calling that all men should be equal. John had a humility and a gentleness and a peace that was displayed, um, I could only describe it kind of as inexpressible strength and conviction, and the grace of God just poured out of his life. And I remember sitting there, because it was contagious. Like I could feel it touching me. And I remember there just kind of praying out of the side of my mouth, Lord, may I one day have a relationship like you, like John has with you. Lord, may your grace fill me to the point that how I live, like I am just, it. I want to follow you and that everything I do and everything I say reflects you. I was blown away. We are indebted to men and to women like this and to many others. One, because of the, the impact they've had on our culture, but I think we're indebted to them because of the life of faith that they show us. They show us a, a witness to what it means to have a surrendered life unto God. 
those whose lives, that the only option for them is commitment with all of its consequences, and it's, it's beautiful. I stand here convicted because I know I fall short of that kind of life at times, maybe a lot of the time. But yet I hear Jesus calling me, and as only Jesus does, in that sometimes quiet voice, sometimes in that firm voice, saying, Eric, but you follow me. Continue to follow me deeper. I dare you to give me all of your life and see what I can do in you and through you. In our lectionary passage today, we see the life of John the Baptist and a few of the early followers of Jesus. And certainly John would be listed in that same category with Dr. King and John Perkins and others like him because John was all in, right? He obeyed God um, to the best of his ability. And John shares these words. So it's the Gospel of John, written by the Apostle John, writing about John the Baptist. But in verse 29, and I'm going I'm to expand a section a little bit from what's in our lectionary reading because they're meant to go together. But uh, would you, you know, let's stand as we just encounter God's word together. It says, the next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him. And he said, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Then John gave this testimony. I saw the Spirit come down from heaven as a dove and remain on him. And I myself did not know him, but the one who sent me to baptize with water told me, the man on whom you see the Spirit come down and remain is the one you will baptize with the Holy Spirit. I have seen and testified that this is God's chosen one. The next day, John was there with two of his disciples. And when they saw Jesus passing by, they said, look, the Lamb of God. When the two disciples heard him say this, they followed Jesus. Turning around, Jesus saw them following and asked, what do you want? They said, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? Come, Jesus said, and you will see. So they went, and they saw where he was staying, staying, and they spent the day with him, and it was about four in the afternoon. Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, was one of the two who heard about John, about what John had said, and followed Jesus. The first thing Andrew did was find his brother Simon and tell him, we have found the Messiah, that is the Christ, and he brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked to him and said, You are Simon, son of John, but you will be called Cephas, which translated as Peter. The next day, Jesus decided to leave Galilee. Finding Philip, he said to him, Follow me. This is the good word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Go ahead and have a, have a seat. <clears throat> I want to make a few comments about this. I don't want to go all Bible study on you, but I think it's important to not just know the ideas and the stories of Scripture, but to actually how we engage and get underneath the stories of Scripture because there's some pretty fascinating things in these few verses. First, we encounter these very first words. It says, the next day. John saw Jesus coming. The next day is whenever you're reading your Bible, especially in the Gospel of John, it's a trigger that's telling you something has shifted, something has changed. If you go back to the previous section, and you have to remember, like when Scripture was written, they didn't have all these nice bold headings, and you know the writers weren't saying, okay, I'll call this number verse 34, and then they didn't, we added that in, right? But in the previous section, we see this expectation, 
right? Pharisees are quizzing John the Baptist, like, who are you? What are you doing? You're talking about this Messiah. Where is he? Who is he? Because it hadn't been revealed yet. And in fact, at one point, John says, I baptize with water, but among you stands one who you do not know. He is the one who comes after me, whose straps and sandals I'm not worthy to untie. But then it's the next day. And at the next day, something changes. God reveals his Messiah. Jesus is ushered in. His work begins. It's, it's go time, you might say. And John's saying, folks, the one we were expecting, the one we were waiting for, the one who we're, we've been wanting to put our hope in for all of these years, he is here. In fact, there he is. He's right there. And God revealed it to his people. And John you know, we kind of read these words, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. We read that 2,000 years later. For first century Jews, this was like, this was a big time statement. Because John is linking Isaiah 53, and he's taking the Passover, right? And people's sins were forgiven at the temple. And John was saying, this man, Jesus, he is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. John is saying, this Jesus has fulfilled Israel's story. He has embodied Israel. He is the temple, if you will. It's all changed. That, the, that, that our hope and our expectations have found their fulfillment and their answer in this one right here that God has just revealed, Jesus Christ. This is big stuff in the first century. And then also as we kind of read through the scripture, did you hear that the next day? That happened three times, right? That's a literary device. And the writer of John is saying, I want you to keep these three together. That's why we expanded it. They're kind of like bookends, okay? And what we find in each of these the next day is we find themes occurring. And for John, themes are a big deal. He usually writes kind of in this double-layer thematic writing that on one, th- on one level he's saying this, but on a deeper level there's something else going on in the passage. And in this section, we find some themes emerging. We see the theme of Jesus coming, seeing, knowing, finding, of calling. And what I want to really camp out on today is following. These all had their focus on one person, Jesus the Christ, the Messiah. And I hope you see the grace of God laced through all of this. Because the Pharisees couldn't produce it. John's saying, I'm not not even sure. I don't know, you know, until God reveals. It's God in his grace shows us Jesus. It's Jesus who comes toward John. It's Jesus who turns and looks at those disciples and says, what do you want? It's Jesus who finds Philip and challenges him to follow me. This is not our doing, right? This is God's doing. And when God and his grace moves toward us, our only response, as we see in these stories, is to follow him. Now, remember Bonhoeffer's quote? I want to look at it one more time. Cheap grace is preaching of forgiveness without requiring repentance, baptism without church discipline, communion without confession, absolution without personal confession. Cheap grace is grace without discipleship or followership.
grace without the cross, grace without Jesus Christ, living and incarnate, and I always like to add, in our lives. Bonhoeffer articulates the dilemma many of us face. He sees the difference between this cheap grace, grace without following Jesus, and contrasts it with costly grace, which is all about following Jesus. The question we face is, what does Jesus want from me? What does he want from you? And like Bonhoeffer, who gave his life literally to this costly grace, as did Dr. King, as John Perkins continues to do, the only answer they could provide to that question is, we will follow Jesus. Far too many people today have subscribed themselves to what I would call a, a cheap gospel, to use Bonhoeffer's language. They the cheap gospel is if you believe a few things about Jesus, maybe even accept Jesus into your heart, you can go to heaven when you die. I was kind of raised on a gospel similar to that. In fact, I was with a mission organization, and I proclaimed that. And on some level, it's true, but I don't think it's true enough, as we talked many weeks ago. Um, because, see, this kind of gospel, if you just believe a few things about Jesus so you can go to heaven when you die, you really don't need to follow Jesus then. You only have to believe. And if you do follow, it's actually quite virtuous. It's a good thing. It might even change your life. But really all that's required is that you would believe. And it's cheap because you really don't need to follow Jesus in the grand scheme of this kind of gospel. Now I know that may seem a little rough and a little harsh, but we must see the distinction here between what we witness in Scripture and the version of the pop Gospels that make us feel good or even cozy in our faith relationship with God. We must ask the question, what does it mean to follow Jesus with all that I am? Because Jesus never said, believe a few things about me so you can go to heaven when you die. The only response Jesus called people, I mean, Jesus called people, and the only response was to follow him. Scott McKnight was one of our um, summer light speakers this past summer. He's one of the leading New Testament scholars on the planet right now. And uh, I have high respect for him. But he says this in one of his books. He says, here's our problem today. And he's speaking to the church. He says, we have too many Christians who have accepted Jesus into their heart who have been baptized, who have confessed their sins, who have joined the church, who are in Bible studies or small groups, and are absolutely 100% convinced they are going to heaven, but who are not followers of Jesus. There are many who haven't made it real. The mark of a follower of Jesus is following. The mark of a follower of Jesus is that he or she has given Jesus their heart. It's that simple. It's that demanding. It's that serious. Will we follow perfectly? The answer is no. The disciples never did, and certainly we do not. But they give their lives to follow more deeply each day. Jesus called people to obey what he said, and he would watch them fall short. He would call them to follow him, and he would watch them stumble along the way. But he continued to call his disciples, follow me. And that call continues today to us as well. 
I want you to um, close your eyes, if you would. Close your eyes and imagine Jesus saying these words to you. Maybe you actually will hear Jesus say these words to you. But Jesus comes toward you and he says, Many will cheapen my words and create alternatives to what I'm inviting you into. And they'll feel good about it. They'll even be sincere about it. But this is a wide road, attractive for many. But will you, will you seek to live into the grace, the costly grace, the powerful, transforming grace that I'm pouring into your life? Will you follow this narrow road where only I am? Not many will, Jesus says to you. But I am extending the invitation to you today to be another who will hear my call because I have sought you out. I have found you. Will you be committed to me with all of its consequences? And then, in a loving, tender, with piercing eyes, Jesus leans in even a little closer to you. And he looks deeply into your heart and asks once more, will you or will you not follow me? You can open your eyes. Whatever you decide, however you respond to that invitation, realize that the road of cheap grace is really no grace at all. Costly grace is the only answer to the follower of Jesus because Jesus is waiting for your response. Um, This is what I experienced with John Perkins. This is what I know of Martin Luther King Jr. This is what I see in Scripture. I see and experience followers of Jesus who have given them their whole heart, their whole life. Rob Thomas and Santana, over a decade ago, had a really cool song called Smooth, right? So you've kind of got this cool rock mixed with the Latin jazz synced together, right? And if I was gutsy enough, I would probably try to sing the chorus line for you because it's one of my favorite songs, but I'm not going to do it. No, 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 no. But, uh, but, uh, but in the chorus, they say this. It says, give me your heart, make it real, or else forget about it. That almost sounded Italian. They're not Italian anyway. Forget about it, right? (laughs) Give me your heart, make it real, or else forget about it. Jesus is calling, follow me. His invitation is give me your heart, make it real. His invitation hangs, his demands are waiting. How will you and how will I respond to this call. Will you and will I make it real? Will we commit to following Jesus? I hope I do in a much deeper way as with you. Would you pray with me? Father, we stand in all of your love and your costly grace. And for some, we're exhilarated because we have tasted and experienced life as your followers. And God, you are calling us again in a much deeper way 
to follow you. God, may we answer that call by giving you all of our heart, by making it real. God, we're humbled when we encounter your word, but we are grateful for your love. And God, maybe for others here, maybe for the very first time, it's the next day. Something has shifted. You have revealed your son in a way like they've never encountered. And God, for these folks, for these people you have sought and found, God, I pray that for the first time they would make that commitment to you, that they would make it real, that they would turn their life over to you, and that, God, they would, we could celebrate and rejoice with them. God, at the foot of the cross, when Jesus looks deep into our heart and our souls and asks that question, will you follow me or will you not? We know it's not neutral ground. God, move us to respond to you. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.